Hello and welcome to Birkbeck Voices, the monthly podcast from Birkbeck, University of London. I'm Andrew Youngson. Each month we are out and about in the college speaking to academics, students and members of staff across our three regular platforms. Research Focus, which this month features organisational psychologist Dr Almut McDowell talking about current research into fathers and their difficulties in striking a work-life balance. Next is Birkbeck People, where we hear from a brand new student. And lastly, Fiona McLeod and I give a visitor's eye view on the Foundling Museum's Fallen Woman exhibit for this month's The Calendar Slot. So, brace yourselves, take a deep breath, and here we go. So first up is Research Focus. In this current era of the people-centred workplace, it might be surprising to hear that many fathers find striking a work-life balance very difficult. It's a topic which was explored in depth at a recent British Psychological Society event, Birkbeck organisational psychologist Dr Almut McDowell was one of the leading figures behind the scenes at the event. She dropped by the studio to talk about the key discussions on the day and the links to her own research. Okay, and welcome to the podcast, Dr McDowell. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. To jump straight in, what can you tell me about uh, the event that's just happened and, and what was your involvement? Okay. Um, Now, six years ago, I set up a working group on work-life balance, which has been funded to the British Psychological Society with my great friend and often collaborator, Professor Gail Kinman, because we very much feel that work-life balance research, there is a lot of it, but there is too little what we call in psychology intervention research. So really solid evidence that could actually help to inform organizational practice. So we formed working group six years ago, we always jokingly say our job is done when we don't have to talk about work-life balance anymore, when everybody just does these activities. So the event, the question this year was, what about fathers? Rather curiously, fathers are not very well considered in research, probably partly also because most of the research in work-life balance are women. So they tend to be interested in women's issues, but actually there's a real need to look at fathers at their perspective. And of course, the UK law has changed because there is now a right to shared parental leave. So on paper, at least, fathers can now have greater involvement. And really, we need more evidence on how that could take place. So, I mean, that leads nicely on to my next question, which is, why is this important? Yes, there's this this change in legislation in the Mm -hmm. UK. This was already the case in other European countries. Is that that the case? Um, Why is this important now to hold an event like this? Um, Very important, as uh, Caroline Gutrell, she's a professor at Lancaster, she was one of our speakers, outlined very lucidly. Actually, it's really, really good for fathers to be involved in the home sphere to do their bit. So fathers who take more of a share of parental duties actually report less stress and better well-being. So it's a good thing for them. It's also good for marital satisfaction, for life satisfaction. So it has a real ripple effect. It makes them feel involved. So we know it's a good thing. We also know from anecdotal evidence only, really, 
because there aren't any robust studies at the moment, we need those, that not as many fathers who could avail themselves of shared parental leave actually do that. So there are still stereotypes around actually, you know, women should do the caring, you know, why should dads do it? And I think it gets even more difficult the higher up you climb the organizational ladder. So so then, I mean, there's there's an obstacle right there. What other obstacles do fathers experience from what you know um, when they're trying to engage more with their children, spend mm-hmm. more quality time with their children? What are they coming up against? Um, interesting question. One of our speakers at the event, Ellen Bourne, who set up a large consultancy a few years ago and, you know, was one of the, their directors used to fly all around the world. His life has now changed. He's got a small child. He's got another one on the way. And it made him reconsider his priorities. Um, he still worked full time until about three months ago. And he said the reason why he left his job and now set up on his own was a very, very simple thing, but it mattered a lot to him. So his employer suddenly from from having had a very flexible working policy was suddenly adamant that everybody has to come to the office and has to be there between certain hours. Now, the one thing that Ellen asked for in terms of flexibility was, right, I have to be at home until eight o'clock in the morning because because my wife needs to be leave earlier for her job so that I can do the nanny handover. So please, can we not schedule any meetings before 9.30? Well, you can guess what happened. Mm-hmm. When did they schedule meetings? At 9 o'clock in the morning. And that meant so much juggling and, you know, trying to find somebody else who could then do the handover. And actually, it, it was that little thing that really made him reconsider his career options. Mm-hmm. Now, if you think about it, Ellen is a fantastic consultant. You know, what a loss to that organization. You imagine all that knowledge that walked out of the door. So mm-hmm. what organizations need to do, I think, is make it much more legitimate for people to ask for flexibility, women and men, so mothers and fathers, and make that happen. I think here in the UK, we are very much wedded still to judging performance by time spent at your desk. Why don't we manage more by outputs? Mm-hmm. You know, if it's a job well done, does it matter really whether you sit in the office or you work from home? Yeah, I mean, the, the next few steps then, I mean, there's there's already some recommendations of what organisations to do to take this positive step forward in this direction. But I guess there's more to be done to understand the picture in its fullest sense. So yeah. in, in terms of research steps, what needs to be done? What need what specific questions need to be formed and then researched? So the specific questions we need to research is how can we make flexible working happen Mm -hmm. for men and for women so they both get the same opportunities how can we champion more role models in organizations and senior ranks and where we've got those role models which are far and few between particularly senior um, male managers who work flexibly let's say only work a four-day week it's still a very very rare thing so we need to look at the influence of role modeling the effect that has on organizational culture but also on productivity and performance. And I bet it will be a positive link between the level of role modeling and actually hard performance indicators. So I think that is a really important thing. Also, I think organizations need to make work-life balance 
a weekly, a monthly, a yearly topic. At the moment, everybody still talks about employee engagement surveys, but actually very few organizations ask enough questions about the work-home interface and how people juggle. It's such an important thing. It should be a standard section in any employee satisfaction engagement survey, whatever it is that you want to call them. Because the reality is all of us have a life outside work, and the more effectively we can juggle that, the better we will be performing in the workplace. So I think it's those two things. It's role modeling right from the top that we need to research and understand the influence it has. And I think we need to encourage organizations to generate their own data and evaluate it. Are there any particular uh, sectors or industries that are the worst offenders for this kind of culture? Do you know? Oh, good question. Um, Probably would have to give you anecdotal evidence. Um, I also do a fair bit of consultancy and most of my research is field based. So I work with organizations at the moment. I've got a couple of projects on the go one of them uh, with law firms here in the city and the other project is in the finance sector. And what really did strike me there is when you visit the offices there, they're almost so clinical. There is no desk where you would find, you know, a picture of a child or anything like that. It is just not an accepted thing at all to talk Mm -hmm. about your family or about your private life in the workplace. Um, And to me, that feels like a very odd thing, uh, because I don't think that is a particularly good thing in terms of, you know, psychological engagement and making people feel that they're part of something if they have to leave part of what is them um, outside the office, if that makes sense. Mm, Absolutely. It's kind of a a sad picture, really, to imagine that people have to create such clear divisions between work and life. so yeah, that, that's given us a flavour of what you're working on. Anything else, maybe slightly away from this topic that you're currently researching, or is this what's what's really uh, taking up most of your time outside of the teaching realm? <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, my, my current interests are around what we call the um, always-on culture and how people use technology to facilitate flexibility, which on the one hand is a really good thing because it enables us to work anytime and anywhere. But on the other hand, there's also a real danger to it because often people don't really realize that they're still working and they're not taking out enough time for themselves. They're not switching off. So one of the studies that I want to set up next actually is good old experimental research where I will get people to multitask and use their electronic gadgets or multitask and not use their gadgets and then see what the differences in outcomes are. And and just lastly, I'm just throwing this in here. Um, as an expert in, in studying work-life balance or imbalance, how do you find your own work-life balance? I mean, uh, uh, the life of an academic is an extremely uh, busy one. Yeah. Um, how do you find it striking the right balance? Um, do you know what? I'm really selfish. Um, I used <laughs> to be um, a fitness instructor in my previous career. Um, and to me, keeping physically fit is the most important thing apart from my girls and my husband. So religiously, every day I will make time for myself to do some exercise. I took up rollerblading again three years ago. Brilliant. <laughs> so you can find me rollerblading around Burgess Park. I go uh, running, I cycle. And actually, that's my way of facilitating work-life balance because as long as I get my daily dose of exercise, I actually perform better at work. And I'm also a better mother and part for it so Mm. that's how I do it brilliant thank you very much for joining us no problem
The new term is upon us and students are trooping into their evening top programmes across the college. During the first week of term, I popped by a packed Mallet Street foyer where I spoke to new undergraduate psychology student Maria about her experiences so far. My name is Maria Sinij and I'm studying an undergraduate degree in psychology. Um, I decided to come to the UK um, to study, so I first finished my A-levels here and then I made a gap here and now I'm at Birkbeck. Um, I chose psychology because I definitely, I'm sure I would like to work with children. I have a lot of patience for children, so I thought a psychology degree would give me the starting experience and then I can see where I can go with that. My first week at Berkeley has been nice so far. I met um, a couple of students my age, which I was very happy about. I found the orientation day um, quite inspiring. I went over to the student union, and there I saw that I can join loads of societies. So I'm definitely going to join the psychological society, which I would recommend. It, it's very difficult being away from my own country but it's also nice to be able to see other things and experience other things, and you can always go back home. In London, I'm looking forward to visit all the galleries that are available to us and have a walk around all the beautiful parks. London is definitely a place full of opportunities, and if you have the will to do things, you can do anything. During the day, I work as a secretary slash assistant in a small architectural firm in Soho. That, I finish that 5.30. My lectures are from 6, so it's good. The advice I would give to somebody coming to Birkbeck is to try and take as much as you can from it. Try to talk to as many people. Go to the career advice service, because they can definitely help you. And last up, it's the calendar. Last episode, my colleague Fiona McLeod and I spoke to Birkbeck's Professor Linda Need, curator of the current exhibition at the Foundling Museum. Comprising artwork and historical documents, the Fallen Woman exhibition explores the myths and realities of women who, in the eyes of Victorian British society, had lost their innocence and fallen from the grace of God. Fiona and I headed along to the exhibit to see the powerful material on display. Afterwards, we had a chat over coffee about the experience. But before that, we start with an extract from a haunting sound installation commissioned especially for the exhibit. Curated by musician and composer Steve Lewinson, Fallen Voices features well-known actors including Maxine Peake and is set to the music of Handel's Foundling Hospital Anthem. An affecting piece, the installation brings back to life voices from the past. Okay, so here we are. We've uh, Fiona and I have, have stolen ourselves away to a coffee shop just after seeing um, the Fallen Woman exhibit at the Founding Museum. Um, it's fair to say that it's been a, a pretty uh, powerful experience for us both. Um, 
And uh, so just to give you guys at home listening um, a quick idea of uh, the main journey that you take as a, as a viewer at the exhibit, um, you'll come in and you first find out about the ideal image of, of the Victorian woman. What, what was the height of respectability? What did it look like? What did it mean? From there, we find out about um, the falls that uh, that women can take, the, the means by which they um, fell out of, uh, of repute. Um, from there, it goes into section about consequences. What happened um, uh, once they had fallen um, with child and 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 were were giving birth? What happened then? Which leads us to a section about the role of the Foundling Hospital itself um, in trying to reinstate the respectability of women and uh, of, of of illegitimate children in particular. And from there, we end up at the, the committee room where we find out about the, the endings. What, what happened to these women and children? Um, a few scant, um, happy um, endings where we find out about uh, children being reunited with their, their mothers. But then, unfortunately, um, many demonstrations of, of the sad and, and uh, tragic endings that, that uh, came of so many, so many women and, and their children. So Fiona, overall impressions then? I think it's um, a very moving, fascinating exhibition. It's not large, um, but what I particularly found interesting is the juxtaposition of the Victorian paintings that probably some of us are quite familiar with, painted by men, showing these ideal figures of women in the home, surrounded by loving children, uh, epitomising the ideal for the Victorian man of, of what a woman's life should be focused on. And then from there, as, as you've said, Andrew, you go into a different section of the exhibition and you see these handwritten transcripts of the stories that led the women to the foundling hospital and to their sad stories, whether they were, although it's not called that now, uh, it wasn't called that then, it was um, known as a connection or a criminal conversation, but really what they were talking about was rape um, or a seduction that went wrong or the man abandoned them. And you see these letters and uh, the paperwork that goes into um, finally getting a child uh, admitted um, and it, it's just a very interesting way of giving a voice to these women um, and hearing about their stories in a way that the paintings themselves alone don't do. Yeah that, that's what was so fascinating and I didn't, I mean there's a lot that I didn't appreciate before coming to this um, and speaking to Professor Need last um, podcast um, and the, the main point that this is the first time that the, the, the voice of the women has been reinstated, has been brought into the fray. This has very much been um, a story told by men, painted by men um, predominantly. Um, and finally, we get to hear and, 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 and the experiences of the women by the women. I mean, is, in terms of particular pieces of the exhibit, is there anything that jumps out to you as particularly affecting, particularly poignant? Well, certainly, um, one particular painting I think to me is sums it up. This is the Alfred Elmore's um, very large painting, On the Brink, which depicts a woman collapsed on the outside, literally on the, on the uh, brink of stepping into a gambling den. And a man is at the window of this gambling den enticing her in. And her dilemma is, should she um, step over the brink and enter into that life? Uh, or, or what is the alternative for her? She has an empty purse in her, in her dress. Uh, her face is grey, as you were saying, Andrew, and, and uh, it must be, have been a terrible dilemma. But the painting, in its rich colouring and its, its large size and showing the detail of this gambling den with the women in there already, 
uh, looking after the men who are gambling, uh, it leaves you in no doubt that it's the woman's choice to, to, to go down that route. Um, and I found that very, very powerful. Most poignant, I think, as I said, is, is the collection of paperwork that um, attaches to the request that their child be taken care of because they can't look after it themselves. Um, and the, the hoops that these poor women had to go through to um, have that child admitted to be able to continue with their life if they, indeed they were able to. So much of the, the art from that period, as we saw, had a, had a clear moral stance and, and it, uh, something that was communicating um, quite clearly. Apparently, as, as uh, Professor Need said, it's not a mode of art that's particularly um, popular these days, but certainly in, in Victorian era, it was, it was something that the artist was there to say or reflect upon. Um, and it's, it's in the, the, the piece, um, Frederick Walker's The Lost Path, this image of, a, of a, a woman huddled against the cold, against a, a, a cold, white, snowy um, environment, battling against the wind while, while clutching against this infant in her arms. It's called The Lost Path, which could mean, actually, you know, the, the, the path is obscured, she, she's in a, in a, a befuddling uh, wilderness. But also the implication there that this is a woman who, um, an unmarried woman perhaps, who has had a child um, by whatever circumstances and she in her life has lost her path. It's a very interesting image because it, it, it draws out sympathy from us and yet it also acts as a warning, um, I think, to, to women of the time that this could be them should they veer off the appropriate, respectable um, past. What's your opinion, Fiona, of... of the, the moralistic um, nature of these uh, these paintings? I think it makes them very much of their era. You're, you're very aware that you're looking at paintings produced in a time when the moral compass and the moral way of living was essentially what it meant to be Victorian, certainly a Victorian um, paterfamilias, you know, the, the, the head of a household. It doesn't chime with us perhaps so much today. Um, certainly when I look at them, I'm, I'm looking at the allegory and I'm looking at the message and I'm looking at the, what the artist is intending you to feel and I feel a bit manipulated. I think, yes, all right, you know, we know um, she's done wrong or we know the father's being particularly harsh, but we have a much more complex view of these things today than perhaps then. Um, and so as works of art, I think you have to bring your current sensibilities to them and decide do they move me as a work of art or am I actually being lectured? Um, which leads nicely on to um, the idea of the accessibility for a modern audience and why it's important for people to come and why it's perfectly valid to bring a modern sensibility in the interpretation of what you're seeing, as you're saying, to, to understand what the the remit or, or the aim behind a particular piece was, a historical piece, but then what that means to you today, um, what that shows you about the, the, the time itself. Uh, I mean... Uh, why do you think it's so important that, that people come to see this exhibit, this kind of exhibit? Because I think it tells a story that we think we're familiar with uh, in a different way and brings the unfamiliar in, into sharp focus so that you, you look at these paintings, you, you see this art and you can admire the, the skill and the uh, sensibility that went into it but with a view from today that says, well, we think differently about these things now. We, we don't take the same view. Um, and I, th I think anything that gives voice to something that's been forgotten or um, brings into the light something that's been in a dark corner for a while is, is tremendously interesting 
and, and well worth spending your time looking at. It's not a big exhibition, as I said. It's, it's um, uh, beautifully, I think, encapsulated in the Foundling Museum. The room in which you see some of the slightly happier endings to some of these stories is the, the same room in which those women were interviewed by a panel of men and asked very um, intrusive and, and um, uh, traumatising questions. And I think being in that environment and seeing the paintings and hearing in the other exhibition space some of the words um, that these women used as they were writing their petitions, it's a, it's a very moving exhibition and well worth seeing. I, I to totally agree. And just as you say, I think the fact that it's set there at this epicentre for where this was happening is, is a very, um, very candid retelling of... of what role the, the Foundling Hospital played um, and, and gives us the whole idea of the journey that these women went through um, without, without judgment it, it lays the whole thing bare um, and it's, it's, it's being there in the building where this happens is, is, adds just so much more poignancy to it um, brilliant well I think that that's certainly a glowing recommendation from us both so yeah the, the Foundling uh, Museum is showing the Fallen Women that runs from um, from now open the 25th of September and that runs right through to the 3rd of January uh, 2016 so yeah please get along there and, and, and see it for yourself and yeah let us know what you think. And that concludes our latest edition of Birkbeck Voices. As ever, we'd love to hear your feedback. Just drop us a line at communications at bbk.ac.uk. Bye for now, and thanks for listening. <laughs>